Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to be speaking with Tambrin Bates. Since 2015, he's been the director of Softworks, and before that, he spent 25 years in the U.S. Army focusing on special operations. Tambrin, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. It's my pleasure, Eric. Thank you. So before we get into Softworks and all of the defense acquisition questions, I'd like to start with something you kind of made a nice graphic on and shared over LinkedIn. Can you tell us a little bit about the law of diffusion of innovation? Yeah, certainly. The uh, the law diffusion of innovation has actually been around for quite a bit. There's been, you know, several different takes on it, but because it's been around for quite a while, it's kind of one of those things that to me remains unchallenged or unbroken. And so with some recency, I've really gravitated towards it. And what it really says overall is it kind of explains how over time an idea or product gains momentum and diffuses through a specific population or a social system. What we kind of latch onto about it too is the sociographic aspect of the different players along that social system, particularly the innovators and the early adopters. And we're big believers in using people correctly. And that's one of the things that I liked about the law of diffusion of innovation is it really shows that in any ecosystem, there's a very small number of people that are actually innovators Uh, and about 13% that are early adopters. And I think when we talk about innovation here at Softworks, we're really talking about the people side of it, making sure that the innovators and the early adopters work together very seamlessly and closely up front to mature an idea to the social tipping point, right? Or this scarcity versus proof model where the rest of the acquisition process starts to come in with the early majority. One of the tenets that you kind of wrote here with the law of diffusion of innovation is that you can't force adoption and that the best ideas don't always win. Now, that could sound irrational to some people. You know, it might require us to make decisions from the top and take in less user input. But to me, it seems like the traditional acquisition system takes that diffusion for granted and it kind of thrusts these material solutions onto military users after kind of a linear process, right? We go from basic research to applied research and then through development, test and evaluation into production. But how do you think about this issue of, you know, operators and and users kind of interacting with the acquisition process. Do you think what I was saying there, that characterization was a bit of a straw man or do you agree with it? I don't know. I think that the way I kind of view it is, first off, you kind of have to set the table when you think about the law of diffusion of innovation in the sense of, we talk about innovation as this nebulous concept, but it really does have a pretty rigorous framework. And I kind of view things as, you know, there's McKenzie's Three Horizons and all these books have been written about levels of innovation. And, and what we look at when we talk about levels of innovation is really there's three levels, incremental, adjacent and transformational. And those really are applied across the law of diffusion of innovation. But I don't 
directly to your question, I don't think the linear process is always a problem when you're talking about incremental levels of technology because there's some things that need a very linear, a linear structured process. I'll give you an example, boots. SOCOM warfighters are always going to need good footwear. And, you know, as the technology and footwear changes and there's uh, smaller singular updates to things, there's this linear process that's, that's already going all the time. And so it's easy to subsume those. But Jermaine, to your question, and when a lot of people think about innovation, they think about the transformational levels. And I think those are difficult. And I think that with specificity, when you're talking about really game-changing technologies, I think those are the things where the law of diffusion of innovation is really important. And having that warfighter engaged early and often with the innovators and the early adopters really helps to bend that curve. Yeah. So can you just talk a little bit about how, well, first, can you give us like a short little history of Softworks and why was it formed? What are the goals? But then can you get into a little bit of how that interaction at Softworks happens between the SOCOM acquisition people and the operators and how you guys kind of fit in there? Sure. So the history of Softworks really started in early 2015. There was some initial discussions. We were actually formed in September of 2015 by the then acquisition executive for SOCOM, Hondo Gertz. And the idea behind it was really to create a mechanism that was attractive to non-traditional partners. If you really look outside, you know, in the commercial space, everything that's happening in the commercial space around innovation is really kind of bypassing not just U.S. SOCOM, but all of the Department of Defense. If you look back historically, the 40s to the 70s, the government really had the lion's share of all the research and development dollars and the things that were going on. Uh, they're still doing great things, but what happened was in the, in the 80s and 90s, that kind of got flipped and you had all of this commercial innovation. And now if you look, there's really hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars of commercial IRAD being developed. And they really don't have, the Department of Defense really doesn't have entree into those mechanisms. And so the idea behind it was to really see how we can get after that and become attractive to get non-traditionals in the door. Certainly our main goal is to help solve challenging warfighter problems. But we're not the only tool in the SOCOM toolbox, nor should we be. I know that we're a pretty powerful one. One of our biggest differentiators is really, and the key to our success, is our ecosystem. Really valuable for SOCOM to have access to an instant network of you know, over 40,000 innovators that are interested in helping them solve SOCOM challenges. When it gets back to our, our interaction day-to-day -day with SOCOM, you know, when you think about, we talked earlier about the law of diffusion of innovation, and it's really key to kind of have those innovators and the early adopters working together as soon as possible. One of the big things through the PEOs and SOCOM is, you know, it's all about people. In the innovation space, a lot of times we have a tendency to think about hardware, right? Things that you can build or ones and zeros, things that are being developed that seem innovative. But what I've really found is it's, it always goes back to the primary root, and that's always about people. And so when we think about the willing partners over the PEOs and at SOCOM S&T, for example, we found a lot of really valuable partners out there, right? Meaning I kind of, you know, I tell everybody, you got to dance with the one who brung you. And so a lot of times, not everybody is accepting of a lot of the SOCOM processes and how we do things. 
But what we have found in SOCOM is there is a pretty large subset of the coalition of the willing, if you will. And so particularly when we start talking about revolutionary technologies or capabilities, those are the people that we're looking for as partners in SOCOM, or they come to us and say, hey, I've got this really interesting idea that I want to work on and we've got some funding, so I'd like to go after it. And so that's kind of, you know, day to day how we kind of apply our mechanisms back over to SOCOM and become a little bit of, uh, you know, we've certainly got to meet them where they're at. And that's part of the strategy. Yeah, I often make a lot of this distinction between outputs and inputs. And a lot of our processes since the 1960s and the McNamara years, as we were talking about earlier, is all focused on outputs. What's the hardware? What's the weapon system? What will the eventual thing be? Rather than the inputs, the people, the processes, um, the organizations that make the whole thing work. I wanted to ask you here on the people versus the outputs. When you do your evaluations, we often hear from Silicon Valley types and the VCs that they do a lot of their decision making on project selection based on the founder and the team rather than the product idea or the demo. Of course, they look at that, but they might expect some pivots and some changes coming to the idea, but they really look at the team. How do you think about that when you make your project selection? Do you put more emphasis on the founder slash team or the product idea or the demonstration? Uh, that's a really good, it's a really good question. Cause we, you know, obviously we just talked about people. I gotta be honest. I'm a, you know, I kind of look at it as the horses versus jockey analogy. You know, they use that a lot in the private equity side and, and I'm, I'm definitely a jockey guy personally, you know, because they've got proven performance and an innovator is born to innovate. They can't help it. It's what drives them every day. And so I just like being around those people in general. But if I'm realistic, I always have to temper that because at the end of the day, SOCOM is not so much wed to the jockeys when it comes to capability because that's what they're building, right? They want a capability out of it. So, you know, that's really the differentiator for them. And so we kind of, as a, as a group, Softworks as a whole, the platform stays more focused on the capability or the horse side, and I just I, I leave it to get, being pleasantly surprised when the when the jockey comes in the in the door and I get to spend some time with them. Do you have any kinds of recommendations, or when you put something on contract, or when you put requirements out, how do you write that so that you're not really constricting the founder, the person, the innovator, and allow yourself to be surprised potentially. So are you, are you asking, you know, so when we solicit for a submission? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're more capability focused anyway. And, and that's primarily, like I said, what, so how, you know, that's certainly what drives SOCOM. And so for us, you know, we're, we're all about the capability. So when we put an operational use case out, for example, as the type of capability that we're looking for, I think that's where some of the pleasant surprises come in. Requirements documents are great documents but we kind of leave them a little more open and just kind of define the problem that they're trying to solve in general. And I think those are where some of the pleasant surprises come in because if we don't hamstring people, we just tell them in general what the problem is that we're trying to solve. Occasionally you get some real gems that come in and think about the problem a lot differently than I would have presupposed. And so those are always kind of fun. Does that make sense? Yeah, I was. Uh, my last podcast was with Dan Ward, and he had this example where he was working with the Air Force. They were constrained on their cost, and so they, and they need to build a supercomputer. 
And so they just put together like nearly 2,000 PlayStation 4s, and it actually was the most efficient <laughs> supercomputer that they had. Right, exactly. <laughs> Do you have any kinds of um, examples, potentially, of uh, missions or technologies that you're kind of surprised by what was given to you? I think I will say this. I will say more with less specificity. I would say more in general where I'm always pleasantly surprised is we as an enterprise and a people, right? Not just softworks or SOCOM, but across the Department of Defense, we always set the bar a little low, I think, meaning we're not always sure what the current state of technology is. And so we kind of think things aren't ready or as mature as they are. And so those are the ones that really surprise me in general. I, I tell everybody about what I like to think of it as terms of percentages, about 80% of the stuff that comes in on the submissions in general, people have already kind of seen, or I, you know, I kind of have the basic idea, the concept, so it's not real surprising. But about 20% that walks in the door is very interesting or provocative, or it's a little further along than we thought it was. You know, I, I will give you one example uh, because it's some recency that I'm personally kind of interested in. And it was, you know, there's a lot of fear about quantum computing out there. You know, what our adversary, you know, the race is on to get quantum computing. And so from an adversarial perspective, we certainly want to own that space technologically. But the reasons for national security are that if our adversaries have it, you know, they can hack into you know, all kinds of stuff and go after our encryption keys codes. But what's interesting about it is, you know, I've seen some stuff lately and been introduced to things that are very, very exotic in the sense that it's basically just a box you plug in and there's no software associated with it. And that's really very, very, very interesting. And nobody saw that coming. And it basically it's uncrackable even at the quantum level and they've been able to mathematically prove it. And so it's kind of fun because I, I turn around and we have a lot of hackers that we work with and I look at them and I say, Hey, this is, this is unhackable. And they say, nothing's unhackable. And then, then I hand it to them and tell them how it works. And they're like, well, there's no software. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's the point. And because there's no software from a hacker's perspective, it is unhackable. So it's just those kind of little fun treats like that that are kind of interesting when you come across them. I think you said this earlier too. What you guys do is you take a lot of, there's a lot of investment going on in the commercial world and you're bringing that back. And the whole quantum computing thing, I think wasn't like DARPA kind of at the, with Spintronics there kind of at the front end of that. And then it kind of got diffused into the commercial sector only to boomerang back. And I feel like there is this, I don't know, trend over time that we've seen where a lot of the things in the labs, they get started in our labs, like AI and um, robotics, for example. And then it's actually the commercial world that puts that into application and it advances it further. And then eventually it comes back onto the acquisition side rather than organically transitioning across, which I think is where you guys kind of are. So I wanted to ask kind of like, does Softworks model of what you guys are doing are you really looking for commercial technologies and applying them back to defense problems? Or are you also funding deep tech types of things and helping transition very novel technologies into applications? So part of the challenge kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier about those different levels of technology. 
and I think what you're really talking about is what I would consider really pure transformational, right? The deep science stuff of it. Yeah. I think the first thing I would want to make sure I told your audience is everything that we do, SOF has to care about, meaning, you know, SOF aims us at a problem and that's what we go after. So there's certainly a lot of things that I'm personally interested in that I'd love to dabble with, but unless SOF cares about it, I tend not to care about it as much uh, as, as I would like. We do some deep tech stuff. We are doing some pretty interesting challenges right now. I don't know that I would call it deep tech. I think we're a lot of symmetry. Uh, and personally, for me, one of the things I'm, I'm really good at invested in is taking existing technologies and putting them together in new novel or provocative ways to create capability. When it comes to straight deep tech, we do have a few projects that we're working on. I won't divulge those too much. I'll leave them as a teaser. But it is interesting on the deep tech side, we don't spend a lot of our calories on that because a lot of what SOCOM is focused on is more incremental levels of technology. But we do have some autonomy things that we're doing that are pretty provocative. And so I'm very interested in the outcomes of those. I also think that there's a lot of opportunity in just recombinatorial innovation, which is, I think, Calvarian's term of just you know, taking things that exist and putting them together in newer novel ways, using kind of like the API economy of modular, you know, components to kind of build new things rapidly without having to go back and build the full stack yourself. Right. Uh, so when you look back on your accomplishments, how do you kind of measure success? Like, how do you think about the success that you brought in transitioning new technologies? Do you count them? How do you do that? No, I, I, that's a really good question because I think really in the innovation space, I think one of the things that most people don't really do well, and that is track, you know, their metrics, the return on investment. It's pretty interesting if you think in, uh, in operational concepts for any company, you know, everybody knows every dollar in and out on the operation side, but innovation seems to be this very ethereal thing that's kind of tough to quantify. But, you know, the way we look at it is I, I owe SOCOM, who's our partner, I owe them some kind of return on investment. You know, what's going to move the needle for them and, and how are we impacting? So we track everything. There's literally almost nothing we don't track. We have giant spreadsheets, Excel spreadsheets and fancy pie charts. But what we really found in, in tracking everything is different people. You know, it kind of goes back to the people thing. Different people at US SOCOM care about different metrics, which makes it uh, kind of fun. You know, so for example, if the commander USOCOM and the AE, they care about transitioning to programs of record, right? Which I do as well, because quite frankly, if, if we're not getting, getting capability in the hands of the warfighter, then what are we doing? I've also found it's interesting because a lot of people place great import on our ability to co help them coalesce their ideas succinctly. Some are just about it, removing the administrative burden. And then you've got still others that just need instant access to our ecosystem and the fact that we have it and they have access to it is a pretty powerful for them. So it's kind of interesting, you know, again, we, we track everything. There's been, uh, there's some pretty good papers written recently by MITER and some other folks who've done some studies regarding metrics and how you measure success. I think probably the people that we follow the most are in the commercial space. There's some real thought leadership regarding you know, how do you measure success? And it's by a group called Innovation Leader. And I think we kind of track pretty closely with what they determine are valuable metrics that you need to capture. 
Yeah, I think uh, the metrics is always an interesting question. There's so much context that's required to be able to decode what's really in those metrics that it's hard to see how you kind of replace some kind of judgment and intuition and just kind of general understanding of the, the local circumstances. Because, you know, you can say I transitioned a bunch of programs, but then what was the impact, right? And that's what we really want to we want to know. And then there's user satisfaction and all this other stuff. But I think a lot of people, when we're hearing reports of how industry kind of talks about SOCOM and Softworks, there's a lot just of anecdotal evidence even that there's been a lot of success and, and a lot of participation from industry. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that one of the keys to success for US SOCOM among many is number one, they're so closely connected to the warfighter, you know, as are we, right? They're a part of our process. Uh, they come in, they talk to us about the challenges they're involved as subject matter experts. So that really, you know, is an, is an advantage that SOCOM has over the larger Department of Defense. And the other thing about the operators is they're certainly, they're a really intelligent group. And at the end of the day, they're willing to take on the risk, right? So they'll take something that isn't quite ready, but it's close enough and they need it now. There's a sense of urgency associated with it. And so we don't spend a tremendous amount of time and money trying to refine something to the nth degree, right? It's just good enough and get it out the door. There's a lot of talk recently about rapid and austere prototyping. This is great. Fly before you buy has been the mantra for many years, but it applies to basically everything. And But some people say that the rapid prototyping is kind of inefficient because there isn't an incentive to take into account producibility and sustainment. And then what was learned will have to actually change once you get ready to scale and, and to actually put it into the field. So what do you think about that argument for this longer waterfall forward-looking process relative to the incremental rapid austere prototyping? Number one, I would say in general, I don't necessarily think it's flawed. I just think it depends. I think the biggest challenge I see is we talk a lot about design for manufacturing here, and I think that's the real difference. When people are prototyping, they don't really consider early on in the early stages, you know, that design for manufacturing component. And I think there's really this big disconnect between engineering and manufacturing across the industrial base, you know, particularly with the advent of all these exotic exotically designed tools, you know, that engineers now have at their disposal. You know, they can design just about anything they want, but you really can't manufacture it very well. And I think that's a big problem when you talk about producibility and sustainment. One of the things that we even do here locally in our STEM program, we kind of highlight that design to manufacturing gap with some of our mechanical engineering interns. What's interesting is, uh, you know, our foundry, uh, the guy who runs our foundry is actually a fabricator. He's not an engineer. And so that's how serious we are about making sure something can be manufactured and scaled right? That you can literally make it, it's going to be robust and hold up and you're not going to have to redesign it. And so I think, however, there's been some real advancements like on the commercial side that kind of address that. And what's interesting also is I'm, I know your audience is familiar with 3D printing, right? So that's kind of another equalizer. I don't think 3D printing is the panacea, but we can now 3D print things we couldn't build with the previous subtractive processes. So I think that's going to be a pretty interesting thing as that technology continues to mature. 
Elon Musk recently at the Air Warfare Symposium said something that kind of got my attention. He was like, well, it's a thousand percent harder to manufacture the Starlink satellites than it is to design and, and develop them. And he was really talking about this iterative process between the design and the manufacturing. It seems that when you do rapid and austere prototyping, you're actually discovering earlier what it is, you know, that is manufacturable or sustainable rather than kind of, you know, trying to preordain that through a long kind of systems analysis. Right. No, I I think that that's what gives actually prototyping, rapid prototyping, the the advantage, actually. So it's not that, you know, I think that it's inefficient. I think if done correctly, it's extremely efficient because it's going to tell, as long as you have the design for manufacturing process in your brain, while you're doing it, you can take corrective action much sooner or look at things from a different perspective that, you know, instead of building something that has a hundred moving parts, well, maybe we need to think about it a little different as we're developing it. Maybe we can get it down to 20 or 10. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the industry base that you work with. So first, how do you access some of these promising companies if they're not really using FedBizOps or BetaSAM, what, what it is now? Uh, the standard government, you know, posting for solicitation. What other ways do you kind of access companies? So for us, you know, when we are access, when we're talking about access, uh, I'm not a, I, I would tell you this way. What's interesting about the government, you know, part of our charters I kind of mentioned before was to really attract those non-traditionals. And so what's interesting about it is if you look in the government term for non-traditional, and it's really that's anyone that's not received a contract within the last year. What we're fond of saying here at Softworks is uh, we think non-traditional is anybody that doesn't read FedBizOps, <laughs> right? Or, yeah. or now SAM.gov. So when we put out for a price challenge, the way we really get after the non-traditional markets, number one, we use our ecosystem. So we've, we've got about 40,000 different participants. The other thing that we don't do, and I think that's kind of an imperative for a lot of organizations, you know, we started out just like everybody else, you know, we ran out and got Salesforce because we wanted to bin all of these people in different sectors and everything. And, and what we really found over time was that the smarter thing to do is just send it out to everybody because you don't know, you know, it's, in the old days, we used to call it networking. Now that it's on computers, we, you know, we call them ecosystems. But, you know, the fact is that somebody knows somebody that knows somebody that has a solution to that problem. And so we just let the ecosystem kind of push that around. You know, we give it plenty of dwell time. We have a pretty high carry forward rate. So we're watching how many times that email hops out and gets into the hands of the people that need it. So I think that's a, that's certainly a force multiplier compared to some of the more traditional methods of outreach. The other thing that we do is we take a great deal of time when we have a problem, we do a lot of internal market research ourselves. And so we've got a, you know, we've got a couple of publicly available information scrapers and we use some commercial tools that we're, we're partnered with groups such as Ratio Exchange and others that really have rich contextual uh, connections. And so when we're doing all that research, I'd say probably on average, we probably put out about 40 to 50 targeted invites, even beyond the ecosystem. So we're doing everything we can to make sure it, we use, uh, we're also working with, you know, different accelerator networks as well. So we're doing everything we can to push and get the word out and make sure that we're really looking at those people who have the highest 
chance of success in meeting uh, pr- or providing a solution to SOCOM. So can the non-traditionals kind of expect repeated business from Softworks or should they be looking at Softworks as kind of like a front door to the SOCOM acquisition system that they either kind of make it through or fail to make it through? No, no, I definitely wouldn't think of it in terms that we're definitely not a gatekeeper. That's always been, you know, one of our tenants. You know, as I stated earlier, SOCOM's got a lot of tools in the toolbox and we don't think that, nor do we want to be the only tool that they have. And so there's a lot of different entry points into SOCOM. You know, you've got SOCOM BAAs, you've got the TILO, you've got uh, technology experiments that are all kind of outreach or intake programs on the very formal side. And then you've got a lot of informal channels as well. Um, What I would say, I guess, is when it comes to repeat business, you know, we're not soliciting for things that aren't on our board as challenges, meaning if you're part of our ecosystem, we send out that ecosystem blast for those business opportunities that are challenges that SOCOM wants us to go solve. And so if it's not a, a challenge that they brought us, we're not intaking, you know, additional technologies or interested in looking at other things. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I think you, you guys had a recent challenge. Can you just give us like an example of what these challenges look like? Yeah, so this is a very interesting environment, right? So we have to pivot pretty quickly virtually. So I would say even right now we have a, a blast exposure event and it's really about the resiliency of the soft operator. You know, there's a pretty significant prevalence of TBI injuries. And so part of that kind of going back into the data discussion is, you know, garbage in, garbage out. And, and we know that guys are suffering from TBI. And TBI is traumatic brain injury. Right, traumatic brain injury. And so the idea is we need to be able to more effectively measure it. So we've just recently put out one of those challenges is to develop um, an expo- a blast exposure monitoring system because we had to pivot very, very quickly. You know, in this new environment, people can't travel. And so traditionally in this type of endeavor, we'd have this collaboration event where they would all get together in the room on Friday and we would uh, introduce them around the room and have subject matter experts talking with the warfighter, et cetera. In this instance, we just did it, uh, I think two days ago, we had a virtual event where, you know, everybody was able to call in. We had 87 participants. They all called in. We gave briefs on it. There were some Q&A sessions, et cetera. But that's an example of the types of technology or the types of events that we'll host. For us, SOCOM owns everything from submarines to satellites, so we never know what will walk in the door. And so that's why having a robust ecosystem such as we have is, is very important. So how do you think about when it's advantageous to use a prize rather than a contract to spur innovation? We typically reserve prize challenges for quick engineering challenges or rapid art of the possible assessments. And so for us, it's really to ascertain the state of technology or the sector. And then they're very typically pretty low dollar endeavors. For us, contracts are really more reserved for those items of high import that SOCOM is going to want to move pretty rapidly from prototype to production. And so those are kind of the differentiator for us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Do you think potentially not Softworks itself, but, you know, the government in general could do a little bit more to just like put big dollar figures on prizes for things that it wants to see done? Do you think that's a generally an underappreciated avenue to spur some innovation? 
I think it depends. I wouldn't say, I think in some instances, yes, we've talked about it. You know, digital night vision is a really good example for SOCOM. And so we've had the discussion, you know, of, hey, what if you put a really, we've, and people have been trying to solve it for years now. And so the idea was, you know, what if you really put a pretty significant dollar value out of surprise challenge and just let people go after it? I don't know in the hardware side that that's a really good idea, although I, I wouldn't disregard it out of hand. I think what's interesting is I'll look at Kaggle and some of these other data science, uh, you know, challenge sites that are pretty fun to be involved with. And they've had a great deal of success with them. They've put some pretty big bounties, you know, upwards of, uh, you know, five to 10 million for some of these really, really hard challenges. And it's amazing to me when I'll check in on their boards occasionally to see how many teams are working them. So, I mean, and work doesn't equal success or action, and I can appreciate that. But I think the concept's a pretty interesting one. I kind of like reverse auctions a little bit more when we're talking about interesting things to come up. Reverse auctions, just so you have something that's quick. Yeah, so you've seen the TV show Storage Wars, all right? It was yeah. Shipping that's what it was, uh, shipping wars. Um, and the idea was, hey, look, we know that the capabilities out there, I think those are the ones that are a little more fun, right? When you know the capabilities out there and you just reverse auction it down to have it built. I think that's a kind of an interesting approach. Yeah, I think uh, there definitely should be more experimentation with different types of, I, I would call that almost a pricing mechanism, right? Yeah. No, I think there's some pretty interesting models and ways to do things. I think you just have to have a willingness to try. Yeah. It seems that, you know, usually we kind of like lay out what's the requirement and then we go and do a cost estimating model to be like, all right, well, what's it going to cost based on historical data? And usually the outcome of that is, well, you want increasing capability. So that's going to come at increasing cost in this, you know, linear log linear kind of function. But I think a lot of what we're trying to do, especially what innovation's about, is trying to bend that cost curve, get more capability for less dollars, not just more capability for more dollars in all cases. So when do you think the trend is true kind of of, well, I'm going to have to put out more money to get this higher capability? And then when, when are you able to kind of get that higher capability at lower cost? I, you know, I think there are sometimes when, you know, the bending the cost curve doesn't work. But when you're, and that's really when you're talking about a, an initial foray into a new technology area. So for us, we kind of look at two areas of opportunity regarding costs. I mean, first and foremost, I would just say up front, you know, we work with all of our industry partners because we think that everybody needs to put a little skin in the game. And so that's just our going in position with everybody that we work with, particularly since we're so early in the prototyping phases. But when I start thinking about costs for like really big programs, the first thing I always kind of look at is what I call backwardation. And I think there's a lot of opportunity to provide some capability that we already have significantly cheaper in the future. And so what I mean by that is like think of plasma TVs, you know, when they first came out, very expensive, right? Increased capability at an increased cost. But like almost immediately afterwards, you know, as the volume increased, they became prevalent, the cost came down. And it was really because of two reasons, right? Volume versus demand. And then the technology itself became cheaper to manufacture. And so kind of using that analogy, I, I think a tactical ISR is, you know, one of the things. It's kind of one of my uh, wheelhouses when I was in uniform. So not being a revisionist, I kind of know where we got where we are now with ISR. 
but I absolutely know for a fact we could provide the same capability now at the fraction of the cost. And so I, I know that it's certainly possible given, you know, the lessons we've learned over 20 years, but it's really hard to get traction to readdress these tech areas because they're already successful. So we just can't kind of keep putting the same amount of money in it. Uh, but I definitely think it's it's worthy of exploration, you know, especially for big bill items. In fact, right now we have a project um, that's very, very novel with our PEO fixed wing counterparts over at SOCOM that I think is going to address some of that uh, specifically regarding, you know, ISR. But the other thing we kind of look at and think about in terms of cost is we also here at Softworks, we think a little bit differently about risk uh, than most organizations. And certainly, you know, we don't think in terms of how the government assesses risk, right? When the government's looking at risk, they're only looking 2D. And so even risk to a program is kind of only this 2D-ish thing. And, you know, that's really just about likelihood and then impact. But when we look at risk, we're really thinking about it in terms of 4D by including, uh, you know, yield and time. And what we found is there's some instances where there's a really high probability of something bad happening, which would normally not be undertaken. But if you think about it, if the yield is off the charts, I mean, this is going to change how we even think about warfare. And we're going to find out really quickly if we're right. Maybe we should take a swing at it. And the opposite is also true, though. Sometimes organizations take on projects you know, that are way down in the green zone on your top, on your typical, you know, risk matrix, but the yield has really almost no value and it's going to take forever to find out. So those, I immediately, I would look at those and say, we shouldn't even be wasting our time with it. So that's really kind of what we think about when we think about bending the cost curve and should we even take something on? Yeah, I like how you think about risk in that three-dimensional way with yield. I mean, that obviously should make sense, but it seems like a lot of the incentives are on, well, you're going to baseline this program. It needs to be predictable. You're, you're going to be measured to that technical baseline and cost and schedule. And it seems that with that emphasis on high TRL, whereas I think high TRL, high technology readiness level, it's actually a good thing. That's what we're talking about in recombinatorial innovation. But it also kind of, it seems like it, it sets the ambitions not too high, right? We're not looking for those high yield projects. Many of them will fail, but some the ones that do succeed will revolutionize how we do things. That's that kind of looking for the tail events as opposed to right. what's the most likely event. Do you, right. do you think the, the acquisition system can really bear? You know, you, you at Softworks are relatively small and you're on the, the front end of the R&D. There's kind of this understanding of how you guys are doing that, but could that concept scale should it scale should it just be at the front the very front end or how do you think about you know bringing that concept to the larger acquisition system that was the that was the one question i was hoping you were going to ask because <laughs> i'm going to get myself in a whole lot of trouble no i it absolutely will scale and we definitely have some ideas about that so i think if any of your listeners are interested in uh hearing that they could contact me and i'll leave it at that but no, I, it definitely can scale. I, I don't think that there's anything that prohibits, you know, SOCOM has some advantages and that's why they're a valuable partner. And that's part of what makes software successful. But the ideas and the concepts and the processes 
can easily poured over into a larger effort for the larger DOD and, and quite frankly, you know, all the entirety of government. And I think there's been some willingness to try it. I just don't think we've executed it very well. And so with that, I'll stop because I'll probably get in trouble. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll pick up a little bit there because we accept some higher yield potentially ideas, riskier projects on the very front end. But then there's this larger category of research and development um, that's most of like more than 70% is probably not in the science and technology area and research and development. We don't really accept too much risk there. And then there's also innovations going on in operations and maintenance as well. So it's operations and maintenance, but that doesn't mean you can't use other transactions, for example, to do innovation. So yeah, there's definitely, a, I, I think, a lot of potential opportunity to bring that idea of risk tolerance, high yield, but also that also requires some incremental decision-making. If things don't seem to be working out, you should be able to cut that thing very quick. And if you can't cut it, when you create these long, everlasting programs, I think Chris Brose called it, when you get a program of record, it's like getting tenure at a university, right? Yeah, so, exactly. So oh, you're exactly right. Yeah, you can't you can't really have the adventurism without the ability to kind of quickly divert resources and use management by real options. I think. Right. Um, but I won't let you get in too much trouble there. So. But I think the way to pri- paraphrase it for me is, I you know to me the government has all the tools it needs to go fast. They're just not really task organized or prioritized or authorized or, you know, pick your eyes to really take advantage of the tools they already have. And and I think that that's probably my get off the stage on that comment. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, I, and I would I would just add that I think that emphasizes again that we should really be focusing on people and inputs rather than what is that output because it might not even be optimal to say what we should be doing a year two years five years through the fit up from now potentially we can but the more uncertain i think this covid crisis is kind of showing that we don't always know exactly what's going to happen and we need to be able to have some flexibility so i think we should move on from there so but for softworks you know where do you see that going in the next five to 10 years? Um, well, there's certainly no doubt that we're going to have to remain flexible, right? As you astutely put, even with the you know recency with COVID, nobody really knows what the future holds. And SOCOM is a, as a, as a great partner, obviously is going to have to adapt to future challenges. And so we just really need to remain flexible to meet their needs. Some of the things that we're really doing now and adopting now will continue to resonate, you know, certainly into the next five to 10 years. You know, we're, we're launching a new initiative called Tech Tuesday, which is really just going to allow us to virtually showcase transformative technologies to anyone in the government that's interested in it. We're doing it virtually, and because there's really no cost to either side or limited cost, we think that we're going to be able to attract a lot more you know, innovators into that ecosystem. It just happens to be this kind of interesting time with COVID. We'd already been working on it for a few months now, and it just, you know, all of a sudden now, all things virtual have become an imperative. There's also some other things that we're put in front of the current acquisition executive, Mr. Jim Smith, for Azimuth in the next few weeks. So 
I'm going to tease your audience a little bit with that by uh, by just saying stay tuned. But I'm pretty excited about some of the things that we're proposing. And if they're approved, I think it's really going to help accelerate and change even stuff that we're doing uh, and our ability to get things into the hands of the warfighter faster. Great. Well, we'll uh, try to keep everyone updated on those. So before we close out here, do you have any uh, lessons learned where you kind of say, man, I wish I knew that when I started this job five years ago? Oh, yeah, that's a that's a the perfect softball, actually, because I, you know, I think I just recently posted this on my LinkedIn profile. You know, I'm an innovator and an early adopter by nature. And so, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, you know, my real specialty is just kind of I really look at the world a little differently, but I look at it from existing capabilities, right? So real innovators are a lot of times building stuff from the ground up. I'm kind of sitting that space where I love what to me the sweet spot is taking, you know, this thing that just walked in the door now and putting it with the thing I remember from six months ago and the thing I saw a year ago at this trade show. If I could put those together, that would be really, really provocative. So the world's maddening to me when it doesn't see like immediate value in those concepts. So I kind of consider it unrequited love, but uh, there are some things I wish I truly wish that I had understood. You know, we talked about the law of diffusion of, of innovation, and I didn't really have that as an understanding or a concept five or six years ago. But it's really I kind of keep it as a forefront now in my mind as a strategy. What has really taught me, particularly across that sociographic of the different people, is that you really have to meet them where they're at and not where you wish them to be. And so that's really helped me to sleep better at night and keep my blood pressure down. But in addition to the law, even, you know, we posted several lessons learned for us. And so if your listeners want to find out more about those, they can check out my LinkedIn post on it. But, you know, things like you can't force adoption and the best idea rarely wins, you know, are just some of the, the lessons that we've really learned. The latter one that, you know, the best idea rarely wins really raises an eyebrow. You know, people kind of get frustrated with that, but it's really true. And the reason why is because it's usually what wins is the best idea you can afford. So particularly in the government spaces, you know, there's just a limit to budgets. So you've always got to kind of keep that in mind too. Tamron Bates, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Eric, absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.